Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others in the way that Jesus loves us and raise people up in his love. We are grateful to have you listen in. So regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. Happy Valentine's Day. It's wonderful to see everybody here worshiping together. Um, you know, I'm just, y'all know what was coming up and you know, I'm not, I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna, we're just gonna, I'm not even gonna give a disclaimer. I hope you guys under, I'm just, it's just too vulnerable for me right now. We're all in it together. If that helps you, we're just going to go right into the passage. Uh, could you open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8? Hey, by the way, guys, if I, if I seem a little weepy, <laughs> forgive me. Uh, <laughs> but I won't be, I won't be. I'm sure I'll be able to... Hold it together. Um, Ro yeah, Romans uh, chapter 8. I'm reading from the ESV. If you guys are reading from the NIV or the NRSV, I think that's fine. Romans chapter 8 verses... I'm going to read... I'm going to jump around reading, and so I just want you guys to be fluid with me. Uh, and also, I hope you guys take... If there's a day to take notes... Get yourself a pencil, get yourself a paper, open up your notes app, do whatever you got to do. Take notes today. Um, one thing I have come to realize is that I'll share that after. Okay, Romans chapter 8 verses, I'll start with verse 1. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We're going to skip to verses 7. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying together? Abba. We press into our adoption this morning and we ask that you be magnified and glorified. I'm shaking in my boots, God. Uh, I'm not wearing boots. Hypothetically, I'm shaking in my boots at, at your word. Would you make yourself known this morning amongst your children? Would you help us to find security in you and hope in you that we would be confident in you that we would breathe and find rest in you if that's what we need. That we would trust in your plan for us. 
that we would lean back on your promise that nothing will separate us from your love and hide me behind the cross, that only you are magnified and glorified. I recognize, God, that you have, you have created my whole life for such a time as this, for the proclamation of Romans 8. God, I just pray that you would be magnified, God, and that many would come to see the reality of who you are as our Father, as our lover. Yes, there are so many things in this world that are enticing, but I pray that we would genuinely seek you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm just going to jump in, and I'm going to try my best. To slow down but I hope that you guys can just keep up because I was going to split this into two weeks but I think that God was challenging me to do it all in one go and so I'm gonna try to do it all in one go uh, the sermon title is called spirit of life spirit of adoption spirit of love the sermon title is spirit of life spirit of adoption Spirit of love. If you if it's hard to copy spirit of again, it's just life, adoption, love. The main idea, although it does not encompass it enough, given Romans 8 to 8, just given Romans 8 to 8, comma, <laughs> no condemnation, no distance between you and the love of God. No condemnation, no distance between you and the love of God. Just gonna jump right in. Please track with me and keep up with me. Verse one, there is now therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Now, where is this therefore coming from? The word therefore is not actually in attachment to six and seven. It's actually an attachment to Romans five. So therefore, so verse Romans chapter six and seven were kind of like a caveat to God proclaiming the love of God, right? To uh, Paul proclaiming the love of God. So he thinks there is that there is now therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And that takes us back to Romans 5, 16 through 18. Now, Romans 16 says, if you guys don't remember, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. This is talking about the difference between Adam and Christ in the context of Romans 5, 8. For God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right. And the reason for why these two verses are tied is actually the word condemnation. This word condemnation, I didn't write it down for reference from the Greek, but it actually exists three times in the New Testament. Romans 5, Romans 6, 5, Romans 5 verse 16, Romans 5 verse 18, and then Romans 8, 1. That's the only time this word pops up in all of the New Testament. Okay, so <laughs> clearly you cannot make any attachments elsewhere. It only attaches to each other. 
Um, there is now therefore no condemnation in Christ. None. It's final. And I, I talked a little bit about this, but it's an elaboration of the way of the spirit that we talked about last week. The first part of the Romans chapter eight goes into the sin offering of Jesus. So it's this interchange between us and him, right? And it talks about the difference in sin um, and how the law wasn't enough. So how Christ took on flesh to change our place between us and him, to change our place. So the sin offering of Jesus, it talks about this interchange between us and him. Now, I want to draw our attention to the beginning of Romans 8. It says, it says, for God, verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So this is a play on the word flesh. So since... The law, weakened by the flesh, the human body, could not pay the price of our sin. God sent his son to do what the law could not do. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. The word sark, sarks is not just a word. It's not just a word that means flesh. It doesn't mean meat. We're not talking about meat here. We're not talking about our physical flesh here. We're actually talking about sin and how sin exists in the body, right? And how, so what, what is happening here is that law, the law weakened by the flesh could not take on our sin. It could not replace us. It could not wash it away. So Christ took on the likeness of human flesh to do what the law could not do in order to switch the places because someone had to die. The thing about sin and the reason why God specifies that Christ is a sin offering because that's a tie to the Old Testament is that sin is not a boo-boo. Sin is not a slap on the wrist. Sin can only be washed away by blood. Life for life. Because it is a very serious rebellion against God. And there was nothing that could take on the condemnation, the due judgment that we ought to deserve. And so Christ took on flesh to do in the flesh what the law couldn't do in the flesh so we can switch places. And then he goes in and he does a little bit more of a caveat. The difference between sin and spirit is life and death. And verses 7 through 8 explain why the mind of the flesh is death. And then Paul goes, but you have been changed up. It's all tied together because the sin offering of Jesus switches between us and him. And then Paul goes into explaining what this, the mind of the sin is on death, but the mind that is on the spirit is on life. Why? Because the mind of the spit uh, on sin does not care for the things of God. It cannot please God. If you read Romans, if you were doing discipleship perhaps, and you read Romans one through eight, that's a very somber note to finish on. Ah, that's me. I am, my mind is on death. But 
Paul actually corrects it. He doesn't let, he doesn't let you finish. He says, no, but you are not, you are not, your mind is not on. Your mind is not on the flesh. Your mind is on the spirit. If you're Christian, your mind is not on flesh, but it's on the spirit. I'll elaborate on that more later. I want to deal with a bit of a, for those of us thinkers in the room, I want to deal with a little bit of a thought. If Christ took on flesh, does that mean that Christ was fallen? If Christ took on sarxe, sarxe, does that mean that Christ was fallen? That's a really good question. Paul covers that with likeness of because he's making a word play on the word flesh. So he actually says that Christ came in the likeness of flesh in order to be able to pay the offering that Christ took on the form of sinful flesh to be able to do what nothing else could do so that you and I can live. We lose our beloved, we lose our beloved family our comrades, our friends, not by choice, but because the body is decrepit and it rots and it dies and it fails. But Christ willingly took on broken flesh for you and for me. And he died willingly. It didn't just happen to him. He did it willingly as a sin offering. And so it's not that Christ took on sinful nature, but he took on the likeness of flesh to do what nothing else could. Now, why did Christ have to take on flesh? Think about it this way. When Andrew Yang ran for president, I got excited. Why? It's not because I don't love Obama, right? I love Obama. Now, Obama's imperfect. He's not like a shining paradigm or a paragon or just like a perfect example of what a human should be or a Christian should be, or even like the shining picture of, of black success, uh, because there are plenty of even greater examples of that. Uh, he's not a perfect person. Um, but that's not why I, I liked that Andrew Yang was running for president. It's because Andrew Yang looked like me for the first time in American history. A man who looked like me was running for president. Now, my sisters, I have two half-sisters who are 10 and 12 years older than me. Their names are Amanda and Amy Slater. They are half white, half Korean, and I am 100% Korean. But here's the funny thing. They don't have naturalized U.S. citizenship. So they look really white. Amy lives in North Carolina. Amanda lives in Tennessee. And they can get away with living there because they are white. And I am 100% Korean, grew up in the slums of New York City. And yet, I can run for president and they cannot. How interesting is that? I used to like find a lot of solace and comfort in that because, you know, I looked so different for, from them. Uh, and they just felt so much more American than me. Um, so I spent a lot of time catching up to their Americanness, right? But not really being able to because, you know, I am Hanguk Saram, you know? I don't, I don't have, I don't have the Caucasian features. Um, so it's like what you feel with your white friends in school, but even worse because they're family and then you have white family. 
But what I took comfort in is that I could technically run for president and they can't because they have South Korean passports and I, I was born American. Yeah, America. Um, now, but nobody knew, you know, like even if you hear that growing up, you don't know that you can until you see somebody that's done it. That was the significance in Obama getting presidency. It's that now half of America is finally acknowledged in power and strength. Yes, if you're black, this country is yours too. It's your land as well. And you can be president. It was so big. It's so big that Kamala Harris, she's Asian, partly. <laughs> um, it's so important, it's so big, right? But it's big because they look like us. There's this sense of representation there. So even though God loved us, he couldn't take on the weight and the grass. This is an imperfect analogy and an imperfect example, but it, it helps to explain a little bit more. It only took, it was only until Christ can truly represent the nature of our flesh that he was able to take on the price of our sin. In order to take on our blame, he took on our likeness to be able to represent us. Now, some of you guys might think, because it ends with Paul saying, this, this first part ends with Paul saying, but you are of the spirit. You are of the spirit. You who believe in God, you who is imperfect, you who is broken, you who does not know everything about God, you who may not have read God's word for the past six months, you who may not have paid attention to the sermon for the past year and a half, you are in the mind and law of the spirit. You might feel like, well, Jane, to be honest, I don't feel like the spirit is with me. I would say to that, if you really do believe in Jesus, no, humble yourself, you're wrong. Because whether or not the spirit is in you is not a matter of whether or not you are holy, it's fundamental. It's a fundamental fact of our existence. Even if you don't feel like you have the spirit in you, you do. Now for some, that might be hard to hear because it's got nothing to do with you and who you are. But it's also the basis for a life of confidence and obedience to the Lord. Now, that's the first bit, the spirit of life how we have life because of the sin offering of God. But then, ha ha ha, y'all thought, because that's only the first part of chapter eight, then God goes a layer deeper into the spirit of adoption. And he says, you are sons of God. You are not slaves of fear, but you have the spirit of sonship. You have the spirit of adoption as sons by which you can cry out, Abba, Father. 
If I sound like I have a bit of a lisp today, it's because my jaw is locking because of what we're talking about today. My hands are sweaty. I'm barely holding on to this mic. Um, I'm gonna talk about this first part about being slaves of fear. You are not slaves, but you are sons. It's not about oppression, but liberation. The spirit of God liberates us from the oppression of sin. You are not begging for God. You're not begging to be heard by God. But you are a son. Now how? The spirit of adoption. The significance, or first, the difference between being slave and being son. What do you think is the difference between being slave and son? Christian. What do you think is the difference between a, between being a slave and being a son? Thank you. The difference between a slave and a son. Mm -hmm. uh, in the context of like a slave relationship, there is no, there is not necessarily love reciprocated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Keep talking. But in the relationship of like a son, there is there's a true relationship. There is love that goes both ways. There is respect. There is some modicum of quality, not necessarily quality, but much uh, higher, a uh, much more elevated relationship than you would find in a quote unquote slave relationship. If you guys want to hear. Christian's answer, you have to check out that YouTube um, because the camera would have picked it up, but I, there was no way. Um, to, re to, to sum up Christian's response, he said that um, slave relationships, there's no reciprocation of love uh, and there's no reciprocation of respect, but that in a, in a relationship of sonship, the love is reciprocated. It goes both ways. There's respect and like an elevation of the quality of life that wouldn't exist in a slave relationship. Did I do the best that I could have? That is such an eloquent answer. Yes, in one answer, there is love in the son relationship that it doesn't exist in the slave. So now, that's given that there is love now in our relationship, rather than being a slave to sin, we are loved by God and we are adopted into his family as sons. What is the significance of that? The significance of adopted sonship, write it down. The significance of the fact that you are an adopted son is that you now belong to God. First and foremost, that you belong to God. And the second thing is that you are heirs. The significance of being a son is that you are now an heir. Now, some of you guys might think, Jane, why does God say sons? I'm a girl. It's Valentine's Day. Way to leave me out. Uh, why is it only sons? How, what about the daughters? Woohoo! Um, that's a really good question. It's not about gender. It's in, back in the time, only boys were actually adopted because boys can carry on families. Um, 
And often when male, uh, regrettably, when male roles were pointed out, they represented both genders. And so what's going on here is that the man is representing both. Um, the language, the Greek language itself is gendered and females are a part of this. Um, so that's, that's number one, the reason why it's a son, but number two, the, the significance of the son is, is being an heir. God isn't necessarily pointing out the gender of the son more than he is pointing out the significance and the family role of the son in the family. What I mean by that is sons inherited things. Being a son had economic significance because you inherited a share of what your parents owned. What God is saying here by saying that he adopted you into his family as a son is that you are now a co-heir of, of the inheritance of God's glory with who is the son of God. Y'all might overlook this. I'm going to say this one more time. You are now co-heirs to the inheritance of God with Jesus. You know that perfect guy that lived for 33 years and then died for you and you don't even remember him half the time? That guy. You are now adopted sons with Christ. And you follow in Christ, in his road to glory. That might mean suffering. We know that Christ suffered. That might mean temptation. We know that Christ was tempted. That might mean persecution. We know that Christ was persecuted. But it isn't anything in comparison to the glory of God. The glory that you have already inherited. It's hard to see this in the world, but we have hope. Hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what he already has? We have hope. So first, God reassures us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He explains to us that we have been given the spirit of life. And he says, well, the mind, of, the mind of the flesh is on death, but the mind of the spirit is on life. But you, you, even the half-hearted ones, yes, you, even the ones who are just now coming to see God, you are in the spirit. And then he reassures us that we are his sons, that we are co-heirs with Christ. And then he reassures us that we have hope. And he says, I'm directly quoting it when I say hope that a scene is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? It's true. It's the significance of the word hope is that you are putting your confidence in something that hasn't come to pass. So if you're hoping for what you can see, that's not hope. But the fact that you hope is that you are hoping in something that you haven't seen yet. And then God reassures us again that 
because hoping is hard and sufferings are hard. But God reassures us again that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He prays for us when we don't know what to pray for. For those of you guys, this is going to feel like one drawn out application. I am so sorry. But for those of you guys who feel like you don't know how to pray right now. For those of you guys who feel like you are not good with God right now. For those of you who feel like you are far from God and that you have been far for a long time. And yeah, maybe everybody else in this Zoom chat and in this room or in this house right now, everybody else has a stake in the inheritance, but me, I'm not too sure anymore. To you, God says that he is with you. He reassures you that you are his son. And then after that, he then reassures you all the more. Even when you don't know how to pray, the Spirit helps you in your weakness. Even when you don't know how to pray. He prays for us when we don't know what to pray for. Because... We, can't, we miss that. Romans 8.28 is one of the most overplayed verses in scripture everywhere. But we miss that Romans 8.28 is tied to Romans 26 and Romans 8.26 and 27. The spirit intercedes from us with groanings beyond words, even when we don't know what to pray for. For in all things, not in some things, not in half the things, not in three quarters of the things, not when you're reading your Bible, not when you have a relationship with God, for in all things, not when you have all the money you need, not when your family is safe and stable, not when everybody is healthy, but when somebody is sick, somebody's about to die, when you are embittered, when you have been hurt, when you have been betrayed, when you have been rejected, when you have been forgotten, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. I like to think of it like a dish. When a chef creates a dish, I'll use, I, I even wrote it in my planner how good it was. Man, everybody has got to, I am not on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok, but the TikTok pasta is so good. We like, I like, Grace and Amy and I, we tried like three, like two different ways to make it. And Grace sent me another way to make it. And we're probably going to try it again, but it's so good. It's like you bake tomatoes and a block of feta cheese and you like drown it in olive oil. Yeah. And you throw in some garlic. I like to throw in onions with it because it makes it really yummy. Um, and then you bake it for 30 minutes. You make your pasta on the side. I like to put in some gogi because I cannot just live with tomatoes and garlic and cheese. Um, so the more yummy one was when you cool, like if you, if you, um, grill sangipsa, pork belly, 
like thick pork belly and then you season it like you would Italian uh, meats. Like so you, you use Italian seasoning. I, I threw in a little bit of thyme. I grilled it um, with salt and uh, salt, salt, thyme, and then my Italian seasoning, which is like a mix of oregano, basil, and a couple of other things. Um, and then you mix it in when you mix in the pasta after. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God, it was so good, right? But the ingredients are so simple. And I was taking ingredients from this way and I was like, oh, we've got onions, we throw it in. Oh, we got, we throw it in, we throw in more garlic than I've ever seen peeled, right? But we finished all of them. Don't ask us about our breath. But it was just so good, so good, so good, right? All the ingredients, so cute, Christian. All the ingredients are cooked together into a dish. All these different ingredients are cooked together, but when it comes together, it makes a completely different thing that, than what you would have had on its own. I will never eat a block of feta cheese. You can give me money. I will not eat just a block of cheese. I will not. Throw money at me, I will not. If you throw money at me, I'll kill you, but I will not. I, I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. Why would I say that during a sermon? <laughs> uh, uh, but some of the ingredients are things you can eat, things you can muster. I love sangbisar on its own. Some of the ingredients you might not like, but you put it together and you might like it more than you ever would have before. It's like that. It's like a dish for in all things god works for the good of those who love us who, for, who love him who have been called according to his purpose and it wraps up a bit there what is god doing here for the past 30 verses all God has been doing is building a rationale of assurance that God has a plan that he is unfolding. Let me put it like this. Oh, oh, <gasps> before I move into that, this is very important. 28 through 30. We skip over that last verse, the, the last couple of verses. And to be real, I'm not addressing, I'm not going to address predestination and free will right now. Uh, if you want to talk about that with me, we can. For, for those of you guys who might not know, the UMC is technically, it leans more Arminian, which is free will. I have been taught to be in the PCA, so I am pretty Calvinist. But that is my own personal, I'm not too sure. I haven't made up my mind. I don't really feel the need to make up my mind because, hey, both those words are not in the Bible. So I don't really need to identify with them. For those of you guys who might like theological conversation more than reading scripture, you can think about that for a second. Um, so if you want, we can talk about it. And I will, I will really, I will really like enter it. It's really entertaining for me to talk out ideas. So come, come at me, at me, you know? Um, but I'm not going to address that here because in the midst of addressing that stupid, important, but stupid conversation, we miss the word for new. What God is saying in those two verses, the main thing that God is trying to get at, that we miss when we get lost in the word predestined, 
is that the word for new us is different than the word new us. What it means, what it implies in the original language is that God's plan for us began in a decision to come into relationship with us. God's plan for us, I'm going to write, write it down. God's plan for you came, began in a decision to come into relationship with you. He started the first thing about your life that he determined was that you were going to be his. What is God trying to do here? God is providing assurance for the plan that he is unfolding in your life. Nobody can condemn you. Because Jesus did that. Jesus came into the flesh, the flesh that is weak, the flesh that is broken. He came in the likeness of human flesh so he can take that on. And now because of that, you are in the spirit, whether you like it or not. And you are a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir. And even the spirit intercedes for you. When you don't know how to pray, when you feel weak, the Spirit is interceding for you. You know why? Because God in all things is working for your good. And he has called you according to his purpose in your life. And he knew you before you were born. In this very moment as you're wrestling with whether or not God exists in your life, in this very moment as you're wrestling with whether or not God loves you, whether or not you have a real relationship with him, God, that was the first thing he determined in you. For those of you guys who might think that your relationship with God is not fundamental to your existence, it is the first thing that he put in you before your family, before your whole life was written. The first thing he determined was his relationship with you. We hate losing people to death, but Christ willingly hung on a cross. You know when a, I've, <laughs> some of us, um, I don't know if you guys experienced this growing up, but it's quite traumatizing when you realize that your parents didn't have you on purpose. Um, like some people, you know, are trying their best to have a children and then children form, but sometimes children are like a blessing that pops out in the middle of nowhere. Um, for those of us who were born way after all of our siblings, that's probably us. Um, I'm a happy mistake. <laughs> Sometimes they're not. I can't, I can't determine. Sometimes parents really want to have like a third or fourth child. Um, but sometimes they don't. Um, and it just comes as a happy mistake that God had planned. But maybe our parents had not. Um, and I was a, I was a mistake. Uh, not like a mistake, not like that, but I was, not a mistake, whoa, 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 wrong word, wrong word, accident. Accident is the word I'm looking for, accident. Oh my gosh, don't, don't, you are not a mistake. God knows you, he loves you, you are not, a, you are an accident. I've been thinking the word accident and saying the word mistake. It's not today, Satan. Um, 
accident. Accident, not a mistake, an accident. For those of us who are third children or fourth children, we pro and we have a large age gap, we were probably accidental. Um, and sometimes that can be traumatizing, like, you didn't plan to have me? You know, it can be traumatizing. Um, and if most of the time, if your parents hug you, when you say that, you know, they'll be like, no, you were the best thing that could have happened to us. I was an, an accident. Um, I was a, I was a not so happy accident. In, in my case, I was an accident that screwed over my mom's life initially. Um, because even though my mom was happily having me, my dad was planning on leaving her. So my biological father and my mother split seven months into her pregnancy. That was the court. Um, and all my mom was down to receive as alimony was the condo. So she was given nothing but the condo. And the judge asked her, are you sure you don't want anything else? And she said, no. And she starved a lot because who would hire her? And when I was born, now she always, whoa, whoa she always um, was grateful Look, looking back on it, she was always grateful because she said that I gave her a reason to keep going. But if you hear about it, for, a, for a, a woman with a big belly to be left to fend on her own, it's, it's difficult. Um, and then when I was born, um, my sisters don't know this, but their names are Amanda and Amy. That's because my mom couldn't get past the letter A in the children's Bible book, and she gave them the two most beautiful names of the letter A, <laughs> um, and in her opinion. Um, but with me, she got to J, <laughs> and um, <laughs> she named me Jane because the name Jane means gift from God. And she was saying that I was her chance at life. The first year that I was born, my mom made a ton of money bartending and waitressing, which means that she slept during the day and she worked for like 18 20 hours 18 hours at night um all through the night into the morning and then she slept in the afternoon and she started the early evening over and over again um but because her lifestyle was really taxing it when i said things and did things that you know she didn't really like because she was so she was having such a hard time sometimes she would say things to me that were mean and one day, one day when I really bothered her a lot, she used the word mistake. Um, and that stuck with me like a little, like a little badge. You know, like when a, when a, when a splinter gets stuck in you and it doesn't come out, that word stuck in my heart, like a little splinter. And it did not come out until recently. Even when my relationship with my mom was healing, when it's getting better, it, it didn't actually come out of me until recently. Um, I was a little bit, I didn't even realize, it was actually this past 
Christmas time, not 2018, not 2020, but 2019, um, Christmas time, I'd gone home and, or, or around my mom's birthday, I had gone home and my mom's birthday is two days before Christmas, y'all. And I, I went home and I, I think I was a little detached, probably because I was having a bit of a hard time. Kajok was just starting up. Um, I was a hot mess. And so I was, I, when I, when I have a hard time, I tend to detach from my family and my mom, she pulled me into my room and she goes, Jane, what are, what, why are you snapping at me? Like, what is going on? Why are you so de detached from me? You know? And I sat there without saying a word as a, as a young girl, the first thing I learned is to hold things in and to wait it out. And so what I do when I feel like I'm about to cry in front of my parents, um, is I hold my words in. I don't say a word. I don't even breathe until the the urge to cry passes. Um, and so I started to do that, but my mom, she knows me very well and she kept prodding and poking at me until I burst. So I'm wailing and I'm crying and she looks at me and she says, what do you want from me? I've shown you that I love you time and time again. Like, what do you want from me? And I remember just being like, I just want the assurance that you would have my back. I don't need your money. I don't need your security. <clears throat> I don't need your love like that. I do need your love, but I don't need anything material from you. I just, I just want to know that you'll be there for me. Um, I think she was really shocked by that. But one thing that she changed directly from that day forward is at the end of every phone call, she always says to me, um, Whoa, whoa. In Korean, um, what it means is, what that means is, um, I am right behind you. And that has been the most healing thing that I have ever experienced. Um, now I have a dad, you guys have seen him. He's not my biological father. Um, he's my, he's my, my stepdad, but um, he is um, somebody that has, he's given up. I can't go into it, but I don't, I don't wanna go into it because they're gonna see this and they're gonna see me crying and they're gonna cry. Um, but he, he gave up having his own children to have me. So I understand adopted sonship very personally. But here's the thing about me and my dad is that I didn't know that he had given up having his own child to have me until I turned 18. So all my life growing up, I had a really rough relationship with my stepdad in that he didn't know how to be a father to me. And all he would do is yell at me and so, and I knew that he was my dad. So I remember in high school, I once yelled at him being like, you treat me like my mother's daughter rather than treating me like your daughter. And that was my relationship with my dad until I turned 18. Um, when I turned 18, I heard the story of how he had given up having his own children ever. He, he'll never have his own because I'm his daughter. That changed my life forever.
And so growing up most of my life, I had no security in my relationship with my parents. I had no security that my mom would stay. Um, when my mom and my dad get mad, I still run away because it scares me that they would leave, um, that they wouldn't love me anymore. But that has been a splinter in my heart that I didn't know was there that has been leaving me since December of 2019. This chapter in all of the New Testament is God doing that for us. And that is something to genuinely consider. If you guys are in a season where you feel ashamed of who you are, or if you have done things in your life that you're not proud of, or if you have a lot of self-esteem issues and that, has, that gives you a hard time loving yourself, if you feel like you've failed your family, if you feel like you're not good enough, if you feel like God doesn't see you and he doesn't love you, you have to understand God did I'm grateful that I have, and I can illustrate this chapter with my life so that you guys can understand the gravity of what God is doing in Romans 8 because what God is doing in Romans 8 is that he is saying that he loves you no matter what. That even when you are at your lowest, even when you are at your most confused, that he will never ever leave you and that he has planned you and that he has given everything up for you and that you are his completely and totally. And so you have every right to be confident and secure. If you are in a season where you are confused about yourself, confused about where you're going, confused about what is happening in your life, it's really important to remember that God loves you enough to assure the world of you, not based on what you would do, but just because he loves you, just because he created you, just because he planned you, even if you were to be the most imperfect, even if you were to be the most insecure, even if you were to do even worse things that you've ever done in your life from now, that God will never forsake you. I don't know if we have daddy issues. I did. They are healing very rapidly. Actually, the most recent phone call I had with my parents, other than yesterday, um, my mom is, I was saying things, just things that I was reflecting on and then they got touched and they were crying and they do that a lot. My, my mom's eyes are very leaky. Can you tell? It's genetic. Treat them as eye drops, okay? Um, but my dad is not really the type to cry. So if he feels emotional, he just leaves. For He goes out for a cigarette. Um, <laughs> um, and he came back in and he cut off my mom's crying with, because my mom is just apologizing for the way that I was born. She does that. Every time she gets really touched by something I say, she always apologizes for what I've been through, which makes me uncomfortable because she's my mother and I love her. Um, but he comes back into the room and he says, just know that no matter what, we have your back. No matter what you choose to do, we have your back. And for me, that is my heart language because I'm a six and that is the most, the most comforting thing anybody could ever say to me. I, well, my parents, not just anybody, but my parents. Um, and I was just reflecting 
on my conversation with them as I was prepping this. And, you know, we are at a point maybe in our lives, um, always at a point where we might not be sure where we're going or sure whether or not God loves us. Maybe if you haven't read enough, if you haven't engaged enough with scripture, if you feel like you've fallen away from church, if you feel like you've done too much damage to people, if you feel like, you know, you've just committed too much sin in your life for God to love you, always go back to Romans 8. Romans 8 is a chapter where God explains exactly why and exactly how God displayed his love for you. That he took on your likeness to represent your weakness. That he died for you and that he gave you a new identity as son, as heir to a kingdom. That you might suffer in life and you have every right to grieve if you are suffering. But that you will also share in glory. That even when you are too weak to pray, the Holy Spirit in you is praying for you because in every single season, in every single trial, in every single suffering in your life, God is working for your good. You might say, Jane, is not, life is not happy for me. And to you, I say, I feel you. Life has not been happy for me for a very, very long time. And you have every right to grieve when you feel like you're alone, when you feel like you're unsupported. But you have to remember that God is a God that does not leave you. He is a God that stands with you. And he is a God that when you're in pain, he's in pain with you. Because it's not in his design for you to be in pain. Maybe people will mess up in the cooking, right? Not, not that God messed up, but maybe things will, maybe things happen in your life. The devil throws something your way. You, are, you encounter deep sadness. And you wonder, and you might wail, God, are you not with me? You must remember that God is with you. And that he, it, it hurts him to see you hurt. But it also hurts him even more to see you die. And so he walked in your steps to pay your price so that you can have him next to you. So that you, in every moment of loneliness, in every moment of sadness, in these terrible, in this perilous time of quarantine, God has not forsaken you or forgotten you. That the first thing that he determined in your life was your relationship with him. And that by his spirit, you now belong to God as his dearly beloved. How do we apply this? I'm just going to take it step by step. When it comes to adoption, it means that by God's spirit, we now belong to God as his dearly beloved children. That means even when you don't feel like you're his, you are already adopted in. The move has been made. Even when you don't feel like it, you already adopted it. I didn't feel like I was my dad's child for 18 years or 13 because I met him when I was four, turning five. 
for 13 to 14 years, I never felt like I was his child. And yet I was his. It's a humbling realization when it does not take your willingness or your action for somebody to make you their child. It's one thing when you're born into a family, but it's a whole other thing when somebody chooses you. Not because you're a good child, not because you've crossed your T's and dotted your I's, but just because you are who you are. What does that look like practically in your life? It looks like security. It looks like finding security in the promise of God that he has a plan for you. It means having confidence that God will provide breakthrough for you even while you're in darkness. It's, it means confidence that God has all the days of your life set and it's just gonna happen the way he wanted it to and being confident in the reality of that even if you don't know what that is. Not being confident and hopeful in what you know, but being confident and hopeful in your relationship with God enough to be able to stand on his promises. Not on what you've set up for yourself, but possibly on what he might have for you. It is increasingly difficult to find a secure and permanent relationship. As a result, people feel uneasy and uncertain. But we must speak against the lie of insecurity with truth. I've been saying this for weeks, that knowledge of the lie is not what's going to lift the lie from you, but it's the truth. So here is how you apply truth. If you feel like you're not worth love, you must attack that insecurity with the truth of God in prayer, supplication, and in reading. If you feel like your life is never gonna amount to, any, amount to anything significant, you must attack that lie with the truth of God's plan for your life. Man, you all have got to hear this part. It, how do you apply the fact that God has your life in his hands? You attack the lies. You are not a mistake. You are not insignificant. You are important to God. God's got your life. God's got your future. That might mean you need to let go of your grip on your future a little bit. You can't hear God. God's still with you when, even when you feel like you can't hear him. He's probably screaming into your ear. Sit with God in silence then. Let him, if you can't hear him, maybe you might be able to see him differently. Maybe feel his presence. Look for God, because he's there. And even when your feelings can't, can't um, validify whether or not he's there, he's telling you in his word that he's there. And I came here to tell you that even when you don't feel like he's there, he is there and he's got a plan for you. You feel alone, you're not. See, Christ died so you would never be alone. You might say, Jane, my relationship with God is the most insecure of all my relationships in my life. 
To you, I would say that is not necessarily the measure of God's love for you, but maybe the measure of your willingness to believe in his promise. Have you ever thought about the fact that it's not God that's insecure, but maybe you? It's not like God is second-guessing how much he loves you. Don't look inward. Look up at him and see his love unwavering for you. Stop focusing in on your feelings to the point where you're missing God's love. The reality of it. Because your feelings are not what determines God's reality. He's a being just like you and me. Christ has a body just like you and me. God is actual. He's actually real. When it comes to waiting for hope, what is your posture? God says to be patiently waiting in hope. You know why God says that? If you're anxiously hoping, that might mean you're not confident in that hope. God says to patiently wait for hope. He's not speaking on how to wait insofar. He's not telling you how exactly to wait, although it is very practical. He's actually asking for more confidence in him. Like, I love you. And I'm giving you of my assurance. I'm pouring out to you my love. And I'm assuring you over and over that I have you in my hand. That I've been seeing you all this time. That I've been keeping you safe right here. That you are my child. I've not forsaken you. I've not forgotten you. So will you be confident in my love for you? Will you be willing to at least face my love for you? God is wooing us. He is beckoning us to trust in him. What is your posture? What is the posture of your hope? That is often the measure of your confidence in God. Maybe today is a day to take a step of faith in hope. I'm going to, in closing, before I lead us in a time of prayer, I'm going to read out the last part of Romans 8. I haven't touched up on this a lot. I'm probably going to come out with a reflection this week on our website on Romans 8. So if you guys want to read, if you guys want to that to be unpacked for you um, and have that be your Ash Wednesday reflection, I'm going to try to have it out by Wednesday. If, if not, I'll have it out by Friday. Um, just to mark the beginning of Lent. And you guys can read more on the last part of that then. But I'm just going to read for th something. Uh, I'm going to read actually right before to reinstate what God is talking about here. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, oh, no, no, no. Oh, that's 25. Sorry. 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, 
Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Christ is praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famineness, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Skipping verse 36 to say, no, in verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I just have one thing to say about this. The measure of your innocence the measure of your innocence is the strength of your defense. The reason why people win trials even when they might have committed a crime is often not because of how much they've committed a crime, but because of the strength of the lawyer. The measure of your innocence is not in your actual innocence, but it is the strength of a God of the defense of your God. Who can speak against you when God defends you? Let's take a minute to pray. What does it mean What does it mean that you are a child of God? What does it mean that you have the spirit of adoption? What does that mean when God has given you the spirit of life? What does it mean for you when God says that he loves you against everything? to really just um, reflect on that. What part of the sermon reached out to you? I just want to encourage you guys uh, just to pray right now with your hands out like this on your laps, stretched out before on your lap. Just praying to God about anything in the sermon 
that might have really impacted you, that you feel like God might have been speaking right at you. Could we just be open to God's assurance right now? Pray for your hearts. Accept God's love. Be willing to accept God's heart for you. wherever you're listening, we hope you are blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com.